Hello. Choose Trust is our regular podcast looking at how to build high trust relationships in business and the value that brings to everyone involved. I'm Stuart Meister, and together with my co-presenter Kevin Vaughan-Smith, we're writing a book for Economist Books with the same name, Choose Trust. So, we thought we'd meet and interview leaders who put some of these principles into practice and hear their real-world experiences of doing so and the value that brought. I hope you enjoy this episode, and if you do, please subscribe and, of course, please do share it. Welcome to Choose Trust, a series of discussions about how to intentionally build high trust relationships in your work and the value that that creates. I'm Stuart Meister, and today I'm joined by someone who's focused on growth and innovation in global tech businesses. From bases in the US and the UK, he's led teams that needed to perform in companies which have to continue to report that performance, which means they're under pressure to hit numbers and close deals. Now, how do you build trust in such a high-pressure environment where failure carries such a cost? That's what we'll be exploring with Ismail Amla, who's the Executive Vice President for Professional Services at NCR Corporation, once called National Cash Registers. They're now a major force in payments of all kinds around the world. Ismail has had big jobs at a number of corporations, IBM, Capita, Capco. He's been a partner at Accenture. And he's also currently a board member at two major British institutions, Network Rail and UK Sport. On top of all of this, and how he gets time for any of this stuff, he's also the co-author of a book called From Incremental to Exponential. And we'll be looking at that too, what that means. So firstly, Ismail, welcome and thank you very much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Let's just quickly start with NCR if we can. On the website, NCR says we turn everyday transactions into meaningful relationships. What does that actually mean in practice? Yeah, I mean, if you look at what NCR get up to, we have three big areas where we do work. We, we if, you, if, you, if you walk around, you'll probably bump into an ATM machine with NCR uh, on it. So we do we provide cash to people. Um, we, if you're going to a restaurant, you're likely to, um, you know, have a uh, the waiter, waitress, whoever, using an NCR machine to check you in and out, take your order. The kitchen management is going to be done by an NCR machine. If you're going to retail, uh, 75 to 80 percent of the top 500 retailers use NCR point sale. So we touch a lot of people in the world from a transaction perspective. Whether you're buying something, you're ordering something, you're taking money out. Uh, but what we strive to do is to think about what else, how else we can add value to that particular transaction. So while you're taking money out, can you do something else on the ATM machine that could be valuable to you? Uh, while you're doing point of sale, is there something else, some other service that we could provide on behalf of our retail clients to do something? So it's about you know thinking for the consumer in terms of what additional transaction, what additional meaningful things they could do while they interact with our technology. If we could just start there, please, because it, it, one of the things, you know, we're writing a book called Choose Trust, and the big the big binary 
um, a contrast in the book is between what we call transactional behaviors and high trust behaviors. That is really the, the simple contrast. And most business behavior is highly transactional. And actually, our, our urging is to move towards much more high trust. Now, this gets to the heart of this turning everyday transactions into meaningful relationships. And I know you're VP, executive VP for professional services, which talks, which suggests relationships are important. There, can you just talk a little bit about that? How that that transaction or the way you transact is focused or not on relationships? Yeah, and if you think about what we do, which is professional services, and you think about the services sector as a whole. Um, Customers generally interact or engage with the services sector because they need help in addressing an issue or delivering a service that they can't do themselves, or they want to do it cheaper, or they want want to do it faster. And in that relationship, um, I've been very lucky, as you say, with working with IBM and Accenture and Capco and so on, you know, we get asked to deal with some of the most important things that a customer wants to do. But the customer, of course, is only going to ultimately partner with people that they trust, organizations that they trust, not necessarily with the organizations or the people with the best capabilities. And that's my life experience. So you could you could go with the best brand, with the best capability, with the lowest price to do something. And generally, the customer will still choose the people that they trust, the people that they think will get things done with low self-interest, with the interest of the customer at heart. Uh, and so for, for a services organization, it's actually everything. It's, it's, it is the differentiator. Can you build a level of engagement and trust with the customer where the customer really thinks, really believes that you are working with their interest at heart? Well, let's start with that. How do you do that now? And I'm particularly interested because every role you've had, as far as I can see, has had put you under enormous pressure to hit numbers, to hit figures. Right? You've had, you've been chief growth officer at Capital. You've, you, you know, th- if I look at your your CV, it's all about growth and achievement and performance. So, how do you do what you just said? That focus on trust, while at the same time hitting the numbers at the regularity you need to. Yeah, and and it comes. Uh, you know, it, 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 it's, it's an evolving thing, right? So I think I've evolved into somebody who believes that trust is the single most important thing in doing business. And one of the, uh, you know, big um, components, foundations of that, if you like, is that relationships uh, will deliver a lifetime value rather than a quarterly value or an annual value is something that I believe. And then you think about how do you do that? You get on to really three things I think is important. One is by being transparent. So, um, you know, if you're with a client in a tough tough quarter and you really need to close some business, that doesn't mean you, you shouldn't or couldn't try to close the business, but it would be good if you shared with the client what you're trying to do. Be open, be candid, be transparent about the fact that this is really important for me to try and get this business closed this quarter. And I think you find the, you know, clients want to help you because you know, if they trust you and they like you and they want you to do the business, they'll do what they can for you. I think um, encouraging open communication around the transparency is important. So being transparent is one thing. Secondly, being authentic. Um, being self-aware of who you are, how you come across. 
you know, I, I talked about sharing with the customers things that are important to you. I sh- being vulnerable in the moment is part of being authentic. Um, and, you know, the, I think the, the path to authenticity is tricky or can be tricky because you are representing a brand, you're representing a company. Uh, but I think what's important, important is that ultimately the customer are going to trust you as the individual. So being authentic about who you are and being comfortable with that is important. And then the third thing is being reliable. Um, I think trust is earned by you following through on your commitments, by you being good at something, establishing expertise, not just being the front man for everything else going on. And, you know, using every opportunity to demonstrate uh, integrity and fairness. So, you know, for me, the trust aspects are around transparency, authenticity, and reliability. <laughs> you, uh, you, you, I think you may be aware of this, but you've virtually almost described our trust triangle to an extent. I mean, there's a their euphemism, not quite the same thing, but our three components of trust are clarity, which you might rely, you say is is transparency, but clarity is that we're both agreed on what we're trying to achieve. Character, which is the way you behave, which you talked about authenticity, and I'm sure there are a bunch yeah. of other behaviours like honesty and stuff that lie behind yeah. that. And also you said reliability. We did our third C is capability, which yeah. is doing, you know, what we do together and are we are we going to do this well? And are we capable of doing so? So um, it's a really interesting that, that we're, we're, we're sensing. But we're... The, I'd love to hear some of your stories or some of your reflections a long and very successful career with all these companies of where you've seen this in practice mm. or where you've seen the pressures for it not to be in practice and what are the impacts of that? What, what's your experience yeah. there? Well, I mean, I think I can, you know, give my own experience now. I think I've, uh, I've got over the pain of understanding and recognising that I've not been uh, that sort of leader or partner all of my career actually and very early on in my career not very early on but you know fairly early on in my career as a successful partner I would like to think in Accenture um, I was also you know creating all sorts of collateral damage because I felt that the end justified any means so delivering a project was the most important thing or getting the numbers was the most important thing and you know the damage you did to other people their confidence or relationships was part and parcel of delivering that. And I had, I had, a, I had a great, I was lucky I had a great mentor and leader uh, who was head of Accenture at the time, Liz Astle, and she made me responsible. So she, you know, clearly saw some of this, made me responsible for human capital strategy and diversity for UK and Ireland. And suddenly I was forced to think about people and engagement and how do you, uh, get great performance out of them, and how do you get sustainable progress, and how do you, you know, get people to stay with the firm, and so on, and why is inclusion so important, diversity is so important, and as part of that, I actually learned through a very painfully actually that the better, more sustainable way of leadership and engagement was around some of the principles we've talked about, was around engaging people, around empowering people, around giving them space to be themselves. Um, because what you got back was actually from a business perform- business perspective, better performance in a more sustainable manner. So it was actually the business, the right thing to do by business is to have a leadership approach, which is more engaging and trusting rather than a leadership approach, which is more transactional and output focused. 
Uh, and so, you know, that that for me, um, you know, for the last once I, I went through that very painful exercise of learning by doing, um, it's something that I've seen, you know, I, I notice it now with um, other people doing it really, really well. And it's something, you know, whole models are built on this lifetime relationship perspective. Whole business models are based on that. And it's something that is clearly where people get it right, clearly something that works extremely well. So let me put you on the spot if I may. Have you ever, or maybe one of your team, mm. encouraged one of your team, ever told a customer who wanted to spend money with you, no, this is the wrong thing to do, uh, or don't do this, or do it differently? Or, you know, in other words, do something that was not in your own company's interests but was in a customer's interest perhaps and therefore and if so what what was the impact of that yeah no actually i've done it myself um we've got our teams we've encouraged our teams to do that as well i've seen it being done uh by other organizations um so you know uh, just to give you a real example um uh, and i'll of course not mention names of customers here but we had a customer who was looking at all sorts of different customer relationship management products uh, to implement, so CRM products that they wanted to implement. Um, and they went through an RFP. We won the RFP. Uh, we were chosen to implement this particular product. And then we went back to them and said, actually, we could do it, but you're not ready, really, to get benefit out of this implementation. You need to do a whole host of work around organizational change, around training, around process change, around readiness before you go down this road. And actually, as you go down this road, it may be that a CRM is not the answer for you anyway. Uh, and, you know, and that, uh, of course, cost us in the short term in terms of revenue uh, and business that we might want to get. But in the long term, that customer is still, you know, uh, an, an incredible friend and supporter of mine and of the companies that I was with at the time, because, you know, he saw that we had his interests and his company's interests at heart. Uh, but it's a tough, you know, it's a tough call to make because you're looking at great business uh, and, you know, individual glory for the people who are doing the business. And you're having to make a call which says, actually, this isn't the right thing to do. Uh, but, yeah, I've, I've, I, I think I've seen a fair share of those sorts of calls. Yeah. What about the opposite? I mean, can you when, you, when this isn't, when trust is not at the centre of maybe leadership that you've experienced mm -hmm. uh, or salespersonship, you know, maybe one of your team or someone maybe more senior, I don't know. What does that look like in your experience? What happens as a result of that? Yeah, and that also I've seen a lot of, right? So we are driven by um, quarterly, you know, in, in most of the businesses that we work in, we're driven by quarterly results. And you're only good at your last quarter results. The pressure coming up to end of quarter and end of year can be unbearable. And, in, you know, for some people, um, either they, they could lose their jobs in an organization which is focused so much on those sorts of measures, or um, they could lose out on really meaningful bonuses or commissions. So the driver for that sort of behavior is you know, very intense, very extreme, as a result of which um, you know, getting contracts signed, getting bigger contracts signed that the customer needs. So you know, the customer needs something for a year, and you say you really need a five-year contract. 
the customer needs 10 licenses and you say, well, actually, you know, maybe you buy 50, um, you know, because you're going to get a, a, a good deal out of it, knowing that maybe they'll never get to the use of 50 contracts, 50 licenses, or selling something that the customer is not ready to use yet. All of those are, are, are things that happen. Um, and, you know, the individual or the organization or the team are driven by particular um particular reasons, whether it's culture, whether it's the organization not doing very well, whether it's the market, whether people need to make a commission to get a bonus to pay their mortgage or to pay school fees. I mean, there's all sorts of things going on here which are truly understandable. But the outcome is um, an engagement, a transaction, which isn't right for all parties, which then come undone sooner or later uh, and trust is broken. Well, this is something you and I were discussing before, and I just want to dig into this, mm-hmm. which I, the, the contrast, as I described, between the, the wedding and the marriage. And I know you've just been involved in a very wonderful and very meaningful wedding that you were uh, you were involved with as a, as a uh, as someone you know. So um, I, I always talk about the fact that people focus so much on the wedding when we all love each other. You know, we close the deal, we do the we get the big job, whatever it happens to be. The yeah. wedding, everyone's in love. But the marriage is where the work is done and where if you're not careful, you haven't thought about the marriage, things go wrong and you don't still behave as if you're in love and focus on love at yeah. that point. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's also where if you if it goes well, you renew your vows or you'd get divorced. Now, what's, what, do you, what happens? Can we dig a bit more in that? So uh, the, you've described the people, probably yourself in some situations, under huge pressure to just close the deals Build, you know, expand the size of the deal, etc. When people have done that, whether you, maybe you or, or anyone else, you see, what happens as a result? Yeah, yeah, I mean, so, so I think, I think the first thing is, you know, when you when you take the analogy of the marriage, I think how do you sustain the marriage rather than think about the wedding is dependent on shared values, is dependent on core values and integrity. And, but that isn't created at the point of the wedding. That is created by who you are, right? So in, you know, who are the two individuals and what are their values and what, what are their, uh, you know, core things that are really important to them and, uh, and are they aligned? And similarly, you know, when you're doing business, it's not at the point of transaction and deal signing that you suddenly think about, um, am I going to be a trusting partner? Right. This is built up over the core values in the two organizations and how whether they are aligned and how they've been working and what the integrity values are and so on. And so I think actually that the work starts um, in your own team, in my own team. So if I'm thinking about myself, I'm not expecting at the point of transaction to for, for a customer for, for one of my sales leaders to say, look, we've got a choice to make whether you know we screw this individual or not. That is not a conversation that I'm expecting. What I'm expecting is way before that for us to have some conversations which are open, transparent, which are full of integrity, which are aligned, so we never get to this point at the end of the quarter where we are in a make-or-break situation where we've got this decision to make. Because at that point, um, you know, what happens is damaging to all concerned right so you 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 end up selling something which may or may not have long-term value for your customer your customer will 100 percent realize what's happened whether it's day one or over time 
that, of course, will um, result in the, you know, whatever relationship you had will move into absolutely a transactional relationship as the customer tries to retrieve the situation or tries to respond in a tactical way. So, you know, what's happened is I say, um, here's Mr. Customer, you've signed this contract. You weren't fully aware of everything that you signed or you were aware, but it's not right for you. The customer will come back and say potentially, okay, your product doesn't work exactly as I thought it was going to work. Or there was, you know, you had a dependency of company. So it starts becoming very transactional. It's both sides start matching each other on the transactional stage. And you get to a point where actually the, the only, you know, you, you're managing the contract. You're managing by contract. And actually the best, um, the best thing that I've heard from wise leaders is the contract is something that you'll sign and put in a drawer for five years. You're never going to see it again because all of the relationships and engagement will be based on people engaging, communicating with one another with joint interests at heart, not with a contract at heart. Uh, you only come, you potentially only come to the contract when you have uh, an issue that you can't resolve. Uh, and so I think, you know, what, what you do is you, you escalate uh, into a set of relationship, in, into a sense set of transactional engagements, whether that's the intent or not, when you go down that road. It's so interesting to hear you describe that. I love what you said about starts before the wedding. I mean, that's such a powerful point. And we get into the whole culture and the cultural alignment. So we won't get into that now. But I'm interested in what you said about um, uh, about that, because... Um, that's great, except, and I have a lot of conversations like this with clients who say, it all sounds brilliant, you know, build relationships, get aligned, all that. But actually, we're in a world of RFPs, right? The, the, the buyers, the procurement, people hide behind a procurement process, which is highly transactional. Now, how much I'd love to build these wonderful relationships, have these open discussions, and honestly, frankly, I'm being pushed away. You, I mean, you're on the board of Network Rail, one of the yeah. big public bodies that must do a lot of this. I'm being pushed away, don't talk to me, and you'll get the RFP, fill in these boxes, do the scoring, and see if you get the gig. And um, obviously, I haven't answered that, but I'd love to hear what your answer is to that, because you've been on all sides of that situation too. Yeah, and that is, um, you know, an inevitable uh, conclusion in some industries, of course, of course, a lot of government industries. Um, but I think there is a realisation around the importance of engagement and trust and relationship that um, is resulting in a couple of changes. So one of the changes that we're seeing is the procurement process itself has a, uh, a, a criteria around how we're assessing this organization for alignment, alignment in terms of values, alignment in terms of organization, alignment in terms of trust and purpose, which has a weighting which is quite considerable, right? So um, the buying organization uh, has something, some discretionary uh, assessments to make uh, based on the way that they have transacted with this organization, with the selling organization. So it's part, it can be part of the process. Um, I think after we've, we've seen that uh, becoming increasingly important. Um, we've also seen... Um, RFP development, you know, the best organization will develop the RFP with the client and then the client will put the RFP out. Uh, and so, uh, and the client feel trust, 
enough trust with these organizations to allow them in to build the RFP, uh, knowing that, of course, they're going to have an advantage when they're responding to the RFP. Um, but the thing is that the selling organizations are generally investing considerable amounts in working with the organizations to develop these RFPs. So they are already showing cultural alignment, showing investment in the relationship, showing uh, no self-interest, if you like, short-term self-interest, is they're the buying into the longer term. And so that is another thing that you know people are increasingly open to, uh, the, the fact that they're going to develop RFPs, maybe not even just with one organization, but with multiple organizations. And then the, you know, the other thing, the third thing that I've seen quite often now is even if you go through uh, an RFP process that you may or may not choose to develop with others, you go through a procurement process where there's a big weighting around culture and alignment, you may still choose more than one uh, potential winner and spend some time working with them to see how in actual terms. So you, you know, you're investing in more than one organization to partner with to see actually who is more culturally aligned, who is demonstrating purpose, which is alignment and trust, which is alignment. So I think, I think there's different ways that organizations are reacting to that so that it is not a transactional um, decision, which is driven by procurement. It's really interesting. I, I just want to dig down on that. I want to come to your book in a moment. But the but what you've just described there is I talk about strategic narrative. So in order for to see if you have alignment and you know whether whether you match, you're a fit, the selling organization in that situation and the buying organization actually it seems to me have a have a really clear narrative of who they are, what they do they stand for, what do they care about, what value do they bring, what is their point of difference, so that you know you may not be the right choice or you may be the perfect choice. Let's be let's you can know some of that. So I'd like to hear your thoughts. On that, on that issue of kind of clarity internally. And the second point I want to just build on that and just get your thoughts on is what you've just described, again, is something I feel very strongly about, which is the in business to business, although people see a buyer and a seller, actually once the deal's done, there is massive interdependence. The seller can't do their job without some kind of capability on behalf of the buyer. You described the CRM situation earlier, a perfect example. You know, if the buyer's not ready, then you, you might have the best CRM system in the world. It ain't going to work, right? And, and that's true of so many things. So this interdependence, in my view, is not often recognized in early enough in the process that this is a collaborative effort to achieve some kind of value. You can't just sell a service. And I'd just like to get your thoughts, the strategic narrative, clarity on who we are, what makes us great, special, different, and then this interdependence with the right partner to create value. Yeah, there's something actually I saw in a Harvard Business Review report which said that uh, they did some research that a company that is truly purpose-driven generates um, more growth, 10% more growth than a company that isn't. And, and I think that's, you know, we, it's taken a long way time to get to this level of clarity, but this clarity around let's create goals and everything connected to purpose really helps the business create the narrative that you talk about, right? It becomes very easy to go to a client and say, our purpose is to open up the world to our customers, which is aligned with your purpose, which is to provide the greatest experience to people who come to this part of the world. 
potentially, yeah. you know, that kind of yeah. thing. So I think I think the purpose is really important, and uh, and the alignment uh, also becomes really important, which then leads on to the second part of your question, which is um, dependency, codependency, right? Because generally, when you are doing something for a client, and, and the client engages you with that, they want to generate a level of change internally and they want to use you as the change agent within the organization and they want process technology organizational culture whatever it might be the change they want and they want the, the partner to act as the change agent and one of the biggest reasons that we've seen for failure in these big change programs is is the buying organization not recognizing or enabling everything that's needed to drive the change. You can't just say, okay, partner, here's the contract. You're gonna help us become a learning company. Let me know when it's done. You know, that's not how it works. It does it, it does require, uh, you know, total codependency to get towards success. And unless you recognize that early on and you document that and you are hand in hand in terms of even success alignments, right? So. Will both leaders be paid for the same things, for the same success, right? Uh, are, are the metrics the same? Are the incentivization the same? Three levels down the organization, what is the alignment? And um, what is the communication three levels down the organization? And so unless you get all of these dependencies lined up and you are going to govern in a way where you manage these dependencies and both parties are doing all of the prerequisite work that they need to do. Of course, you know, the chances of the projects failing is pretty high. Uh, and that is one of the biggest thing I think that we've come across. Yeah. Wow. You raised a whole, we could do another podcast on that answer. I'm not going to get into that because there's so many wonderful, interesting things in there. I want to ask you about two quick things before we finish. The first, but we're not necessarily quick, but this is interesting. I want to talk about your book. So your book from incremental to exponential, which you co-wrote, you co-authored, and the blurb says this, not only can big companies be just as nimble as startups, they can out-innovate their challenges by combining a startup mindset with the powerful advantages that legacy companies have. Now, so it's, it's how can big companies you know, succeed against the smaller companies by still be innovative, but also leverage the power they have? And as we talk about trust today, can you just play trust into an explanation of what that means in practice. How important is it is trust in that in that drive to innovate but also leverage power? Yeah. So uh, re- excellent question and really important because when you think about so we wrote a lot about, you know, can the big companies be agile, can they be innovative, can they really respond uh, to what customers need today, or do customers have to go to smaller startups? And we concluded, given all of the work that we've done, that actually big companies could respond. But if you think about big companies, um, the way they, they respond is is the same uh, sort of principles that we described in terms of how do you demonstrate trust. So, you know, in a big company, do you have the, com- the culture to be transparent? Because a small company will be transparent from day one, right? You, you'll see everything going on in the small company. Can the big company be transparent? In a big company, can you be authentic? Um, because, you know, in a small company, you'll know everybody, you'll know what, you'll know their purpose, you'll know what they stand for, you know they depend on you for their success. 
can you communicate the same sort of authenticity in a big company? And in a big company, will you be as responsive and reliable to your customer as a small company will be? So, you know, it, it is a very, um, it, it is, I guess what, what, what I'll conclude there is um, it is easier to show some of the foundations of how to build trust in a small company than it is in a bigger company. So if a bigger company wants to um, compete with the smaller companies, it has to show some of these characteristics that in, you know, in a big company, 100-year culture, difficult to be agile, difficult to be yourself, difficult to be able to deliver what you said you're going to deliver because you're going to get all this process and governance and bureaucracy that you need to go through. Uh, and those are some of the challenges, I think, uh, if, if we apply trust uh, to the book that we did around um, how, how do big companies compete. It's interesting. Just two things come to me there. Just, so on the one hand, if I'm dealing with a big company, there's a there's an inherent trust, whether I like them or not, that the products, you know, they've spent 100 years developing the best baked beans. You know, the baked beans are going to taste like they're not going to poison me. They're going to be, you know, they're going to have certain standards that I can trust because Heinz have produced baked beans for all this time. And I know I can trust at least that it's going to be a, a very, it's going to be, a, I know exactly what to expect. So that's some trust. On the other hand, there's deep distrust of big, the big government, big companies, big media, big anything. Is that there's a deep levels of distrust around there. So I wonder how you can how you tackle that if you're a big company, looking at those two kind of contrasting emotions that might be out there. Yeah, and, and uh, well, two things. One is I think you leverage your strengths. So, for example, if you're a big company, you have a bigger balance sheet. You have access to clients. You have access to partners and supply chain. So you can be more reliable in terms of establishing expertise than uh, you know, and faster uh, if you point it in a particular direction than if you were a smaller company. And then the other point that you had, the question that you have around all this distrust around big companies because, you know, with established brands and standards and market presence comes the fact that it's difficult for those companies to change. Um, those companies have responded in different ways, right? So, you know, one of the, um, one of the ways they've responded is to set up different teams who are empowered to cut through the bureaucracy, to challenge the standards, to, to demonstrate that actually they can be an agile and authentic as any small company can be. And then that's one way of doing it. But the other way of doing it, which I think we're seeing more of, is if you look at the biggest companies in the world right now, if you look at Apple, if you look at Amazon, if you look at Microsoft, if you look at Facebook, mm. I don't think, uh, while they are huge, I don't think a lot of people would say that they are not responsive that they are not agile, that they are, you know, they don't have, they've not built in this part of their culture, which says that we will innovate all of the time, right? That we will be responsive all of the time, that we will be agile. So I think the DNA of the bigger companies is changing as well, so that they are built to be uh, change responsive more than they have been in the past. So, um, you know, if you if you look at a Walmart, which is a retailer that was doing so well, their market was disrupted by this startup Amazon, 
And now Walmart is fighting back like you wouldn't believe, not only in Amazon space, but also in other industries, in financial services. Uh, and, you know, with the innovation that they've done, the people that they've hired, the different companies that they've set up. So I think we've, we've seen some great, great examples, G, uh, you know, General Motors and what they're doing around electric cars, um, uh, the investment Ford have made around in, in electric cars. I think the big companies have woken up and are changing their metabolism to be to have some of the characteristics of some of the smaller companies. Absolutely fascinating. Just to finish off this, Mel, you, you've led a lot of teams, a lot of different types of teams, led businesses. Just, just if you could just sum up for me how important, how much is it, how central is the is trust as as a as a as a as a as an issue as a, as a focus for you in the way you've led and, and what that looks like. I, th- I think ultimately you get to a stage of your career where you want to do uh, more than just work for the sake of work. You want to make a difference. You want to have your own personal purpose. And you, you want to drive change, which is for the good, right? I think that's what makes us feel good. That's what makes me feel good, which is, you know, am I making a difference to other people's lives in a better way? And so for me, you know, the, the core of that, of course, is am I doing it in a way which is authentic, reliable? Uh, am I doing it in a way which is transparent? And so for, for me, you know, we've talked about trust from an organizational perspective, from an individual perspective, it's important that I go home at night and know that I've done work in the way that I'm, I can be proud of. It's aligned with my own values. And it's in a way where I, you know, and the work that I'm doing is, is positive, is creating value and growth for the people that I'm dealing with. So for me, you know, you know, uh, trust and purpose and um, the wider uh, benefits you get from having the sort of platform that I've been lucky to have uh, becomes everything in terms of the work. Um, and, uh, you know, trust provides a great foundation that you can keep going back to, can't you, to measure, assess yourself whether you're doing work in the way that, you know, you can be proud of. Ismail Amna, thank you very much indeed for your time and for your insights. Fascinating. I say every one of your answers, frankly, could be the basis of our whole podcast in itself, in my view. But I really, really appreciate your, your time and your thinking. Thank you for having me. Really enjoyed it.